Hi, I'm Afton. And I'm Anna. And this is Grit, a podcast on the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network. Join us in reclaiming what it means to be girls raised in the South. Mm-hmm. So let's get gritty. <laughs> my one time, my one heart for sure. Let me tell you one time. That's our pump up, our pump up song. We had to get in the zone to start recording. I go, Anna. I asked Anna, I said, What would it take for you not to move at a sloth's pace right now? And she said, She didn't say anything. I said, I'm going to play some just. She's like, You need more energy. And that is true. JB, come into our lives. Come into our lives, please. And then we discussed. We were, I was a big JB fan. I was too. That's I, okay. I'm I'm sh- I'm pretty shocked at that. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was like. In what the did you theaters. like about him? I mean, I loved the music. One less lonely girl <laughs> spoke to me deep in my soul. Baby, um, baby, baby, how? I I mean, really seeing the Never Say Never movie like in the theaters like touched me so Tears. deeply. Tears. He will be in my the heart Nile River forever. Of tears. I was able to make it through his weird monkey getting arrested all the time. Phase. I was too. I stuck it out with him. Yeah. And now I like I fantasize about him and Haley Bieber. It's weird. They um yeah he has definitely come out. Um he's maturing. Like he's he's come out of the darkness. I, I feel maturing. for him because I yeah, think we sure. also grew up in the period of childhood stars in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And I think like living through Britney's what was it, two thousand seven? Two thousand seven. Yeah, mental class. If you can meltdown, if yeah. Britney can survive two thousand seven, we can certainly survive twenty twenty. But seeing how they bounce back and yeah. I just I see him as like the embodiment of pop culture in the late 2000s and like he was discovered now he's married YouTube, to making pizza like, yeah with his wife yeah selling his and, spaceship and house putting and, you know and and distributing hit hit songs with ed sheeran <laughs> like i'll yeah, be like i remember being in louisville f- for some organizing event and i stopped at a um it was like a frozen yogurt place i was like and the song and i just started hearing the song i was like wow this is a Banger, and then I, of course, I like pulled out my phone and Soundhound, and of course Ed Sheeran, Justin Bieber. So, yeah, JB, we're we're stands for sure. (laughs) We are stands. Keep churning out the bangers. I will be here Mm. for it. I will be here for never say never say never part two. Yeah, if you want to do another documentary, we can see. We'll um, have you on grits behind the scenes. Just know, yeah, if you want to be interviewed. Does he have a Louisiana connection, or he's from the South? And now he's from Canada. Oh, you. No. Canada A. <laughs> okay. All right. What are your updates? What have oh, you been up my to? God. How well, have you felt the last week? Well, that's that's for later in the show. But <laughs> uh, so I officially moved in to the Casa de Coleman. Ooh. Yeah. It's, big moves. Yeah, big moves. Uh, and we had painters come in today to repaint a few of the rooms in the house and I don't know if it was out of awkwardness and I need you to be honest with me if I'm awkward in front of strangers but they walked in and immediately I started talking about the animals and I just I thought is like is this is this 
is this a response because we're in a pandemic and all I have like all of the storylines and plot lines within my house rotate amongst the nuggets. <laughs> so they walked in and I said, Nugget was out, outside and I said, Oh, um, you might you might notice him. He's kind of a local celebrity. He's been featured on the news. And they just looked at me blankly and <laughs> and I continued. I didn't even stop. I was like, oh, this is Frankie. You know, he like he chewed on Nug's ears and that's why they look like cabbage ears but he looks like an expensive cat because he's got these folded ears but really that's not it oh and this is Lily she's our chonky cat she sits over here and they just and they looked at me and they're like okay so where's the room <laughs> like I do not care <laughs> I mean, is that is that a residual effect of the pandemic that I like think your we're lives so w- much more socially awkward? To not saying you were socially awkward in this, but maybe they were. Maybe they were like <laughs> someone's talking to me about animals, and I don't know what to, I don't know what like, to say. Like uh, but they I don't need to know hospitality. the stories of our lives of my three animals. That uh, they are your family members, and you were just trying so to be um, hospitable. So you're good. Maybe I was just I was just trying to recruit some Instagram followers for Frankie's <laughs> account. I like tall pugs. Don't mind the shameless plug. Did you tell them the Instagram? No, I did not. I okay, left that out. Okay. <laughs> I left that out. I feel like that would have been taking it. Mm-hmm. Kind of like another. before you leave, you have to follow this account. Yeah, that's aggressive. That's aggressive. Yeah, so painters. Um, I've been very despondent and just yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what the no- noise that is, but. Uh, yeah, I know, I know a lot of you, uh, yes, I'm happy Joe Biden won the election and we have retreated from fascism from just a brief moment in the historical American context. However, I have been incredibly depressed. Yeah. Anyways, what's new with you? (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about that more. We went on a trip. I did. To the Chattanooga. Yeah, I went to Chattanooga for the first time. I wonder what their, what is their tourism pitch? I'm going to look it up. Chattanooga, the land of two mountains. (laughs) Signal. (laughs) I don't know. What are they known for? Um, I don't know. Chattanooga. I, we just heard enough. There's enough people that are like, we love Chattanooga. They're yeah, like, let's people, go. Yeah. It seems like a Mecca. I, I don't want to say Mecca of the weird because I feel like a few other Tennessee cities take that title, but uh, it's it's quaint. Yeah, it's manageable. It's a small, like, you what do you mean get, by manageable? Like, no traffic, don't have to have a reservation. Walkable. See, coming from the big, we're big city girls, Anna. <laughs> we're coming from the big city where you have to have a reservation, and you don't have time. to worry about parking. Like it was just so many things, and we stayed like walking distance from everything, um, and so we just had kind of a little bit of a retreat, and we hiked and um, didn't really sleep in because our Airbnb was had lots of windows (laughs) so we woke up with the sun um but it was good it was very relaxing did not work all weekend good for you yeah um i meant to do yeah i meant to do like a digital retreat completely but as you know um the election was called on saturday so i did have a little bit of screen time but i didn't open a computer and um yeah i was just kind of trying to stay unplugged 
Good for you. Yeah, lots of good food, lots of fresh air, lots of sleeping, and yeah, good weekend. Let's have fun with the with the hubs. Where are we? Yeah. What's the weekend? Uh, the the wedding update from? Oh gosh, we're still on tentatively for May of next year. Um, but this was actually a a one week belated celebration of our six year anniversary. Uh. <laughs> you know what? What? I think I've had yoga pat- pants for that long. So <laughs> I think that's the only relationship that I've been able to maintain for six years. Yeah. What is, what's the secret for those of our listeners that would like to know how to maintain a relationship well, for six years? Well, it sounds like a long time, but we were 20 when, well, we were 19 when we met and 20 when we started dating. So I don't really even count like the first half of our relationship like it was I mean it was like serious and important and I knew at that time like he would be an important person to me but I didn't feel that way about anyone in college like especially the the delivery guy from the Mexican joint down in Boston (laughs) like I'm like I had a relationship with the Torchy's tacos delivery man oh I love Torchy's so yeah I'm going to Austin we are going to Austin for Thanksgiving I'm jealous yeah I've only been maybe twice but I've loved it. <sighs> We're gonna have, we'll probably have to do the pod so well. And I now I've started this, and obviously it's like I don't know how it's become this like religious religious pilgrimage to the to the Texas. Like I don't know, I, I don't know how it's become <laughs> this big thing. But I've now returned to Texas for two Christmas breaks because my brother lives in Dallas, and uh, and I've stayed for two to three weeks, and so it's it's pretty nice. And I don't even get to I I, I don't even see everyone that I want to see. So. I, I really, especially since a lot of folks have checked in on me and have been so thoughtful and kind, especially during this election cycle, that I really feel like I, I owe it to folks and um, to give them a lot of my time and tenderness and love. So mm-hmm. this is the year to do it for sure. We need to like reach out to people that we care about and be there for each other because we have the time and why not? Why not do it? I think this year has shown us like, why not just do what you want to do? <laughs> do you, you want to unpack that a little bit? Well, more so like... Hedonism 2020, bitches! No, I mean more so in the way of like, we've set up all these standards of like, go, 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 go. So like before we were like working from home, like I've never worked from home, right? So I've been like going to the office and it's always just okay. like bidding over backwards and just like running around and then you run to work out and whatever. And you're like away from your house for like 12 hours a day. And you're like, not really like, you're just like going to go, you know? And like, you don't really even like think and you're, it's all about like, Oh, did you, you know, did you go to this concert? Did you go to this place? Did you go do this thing? And it's like a lot of that stuff is cut out. So it's kind of like all that's left is like, Checking in on the important relationships. And it's kind of like to me, especially now, like being more like we're open to more flexible ideas of work. I guess it might not be the same for you because you work from home. But like, I don't know if you feel any more flexibility. You probably don't because it's been an election year. But I feel more flexibility around my work. Not that I like I'm still working very hard and like many hours a day, obviously. And it's like the most important thing in my life. But at the same time, like. It also might be, like, I've had health issues in my family, but I'm just, like, why would I not? Like, I hadn't spent a week at home, you know, in mm. um, year like, really in years um, until, like, my dad got sick. So, like. Well, I wonder, I mean, this begs the question. I had a friend come and visit uh, Nashville, and 
you know, I'm very proud of kind of the self-actualization steps that she has taken to, and I just wonder if the pandemic has instigated some of that. Like, now you have the space and time to, you know, to find a therapist and, and engage with them on a really meaningful level or to really think and map out what you want in your life. And I just wonder... Like, obviously, we are very privileged that the pandemic has offered us a space and time for me, for example, to practice yoga every day because I'm not traveling and and my car canvassing. Um, Yeah, I just that's. hmm. I mean, it's not all like sunshine and rainbows, right? Like the loneliness is just so severe, but it makes you think about in contrast, you're like, how do I really want to be spending my time when I'm not when I don't have these restrictions on me? How do I want to be? I mean, singing? I don't. When miss, you're talking about I don't going miss to concerts. Oh, I do. Oh, you do. Yeah. See, I I hate concerts. Mm-hmm. I hate lots of people. I hate rubbing elbows and bumping. And now it's yeah. strange watching movies where there's these yeah. scenes in, in these massive concerts, or and you're like, yeah. oh my god, when will that ever happen again? I mean, that's so true. But yeah, we're like talking. We're like, how, like, can we travel for a year? Or, like, can we like do this? Or like, which. You know, I'm. We will. You can call in to grits. It's not. You know, grits is not. It's not the end all be all. You we can travel. So much like about digital work. So, I think it's. But I mean, also, it's showing us life is short, and you ne- yeah. literally never know what's yeah. going to happen. And like, anyway, not to be too existential. Yeah. Find out what you are. What does Dolly say? Find out what you are and do it on pur- do it on purpose. But also during the pandemic, like maybe it's maybe you'll come out of it a better person. I don't know. Lean, lean into that. I don't know. Is that the pragmatic? Now I'm like feeling, <laughs> feeling sappy. Well, all right. So Anna and I, uh, I don't. You're you're catching us on a well. You're catching me. I will speak for myself. We are not. We're not one person. Um, I have been incredibly despondent since uh, the election uh, eve. And it's funny because I received a lot of text messages like, we won, emoji, excited, smiley face, cactus, margarita, whatever emoji. (laughs) My mom told me that... She's like, you know, you're kind of being a buzzkill. Like, you need to put away your phone. And then Chris reaffirmed that. And and, and I was just, I mean, I was so, and I think when you are in the, the thick of it and you, this is your professional and personal career, your professional career, but also, like, I mean, this is my lifestyle. Like, I'm an organizer, right? And I think I have, like, I am someone who deeply believes in electoralism, right? Like, I think you have to have one foot in and one foot out, right? And movement work as well. And as someone who has invested day in and day out for four years, who moved continents to return to Tennessee to what originally was to fight Trump and Trumpism, right? And I think now, after four years, I'm realizing that it's so much deeper than that. And as someone who does this, you know, 24 seven, that I think we are so far from progress, what I would deem as progressive progress in this country and the state. Um, And so, you know, for example, like, you know, as Tennessee is a case example, we had raised a ton of money and 
and uh, tried to flip these four state house seats, and we ended up not flipping any of them. And the one state house seat that came even close was 500 votes away from a win with an incredible candidate who had run for state Senate, uh, Gabby Salinas, mm-hmm. uh, you know, had wonderful name recognition. But it's just, you know, and I think in a Trump year and we can unpack some of this, but um, with with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket, he motivated tons of voters. And in Tennessee, like, and I'm sure every state was experiencing this. We talked about this on the previous episode in terms of Texas, but, you know, massive turnouts, like, you know, massive turnout in every state and all of these people are coming out in unprecedented numbers and all these voters. Well, turns out the Republicans were showing up in greater numbers too. Mm -hmm. And so Anna and I thought we'd, we'd unpack, I think, something that's very close to our hearts that we've really tried... (sighs) I think to to provide some some nuance to what we believe is the problem of race in this country, especially as Southern white women, um, because we are honestly at the epicenter of it. Um, so I just want to to provide you some context for this conversation today um, in terms of of white women and where we are in the um, spectrum of support for Trump. And so this is an article from Charles Blow, who's a who's an author with the New York Times uh, about white supremacy in the election aftermath of 2020. Um, and he said, let me, spe- let me be specific and explicit here. White people, both men and women, were the only group in which a majority voted for Trump, according to exit polls. To be exact, nearly three out of every five white voters in America are Trump voters. And then I, you know, I did a deeper dive. Um, God, God bless Teen Vogue. Have we just shouted them out? Can we get someone from Teen Vogue on Grits? They have really, like, done the Lord's work. I mean, think about, like, Vogue versus Teen Vogue. I mean, Teen Vogue is, like, turning out, like, progressive content. Yeah, they're like, like you know, why are you scabs of the labor movement of Walmart and Kroger? It's like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa. I just, like, it's funny as, like, you know, as me as, you know, I'm a self-proclaimed fashionista, but, like, you know, I love, that's what I use Instagram for, but it's like, you know, where are my, you know, Bottega Veneta, like, purses? Like, why are you talking about union busting on your forehead? But, like, okay. Right? I, it, it is honestly. I like, would love. We need to do a deeper premier, dive on that. Like, but, but I love the tone of it too, because it's like all like. It's almost like Gen Z writers too. <laughs> no, they're all they're, Gen Z writers. But it's like. But like. Like Allegra Kirkland. Like progressive politics. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> she, like, anyways, whatever. G- g- Wait, can I share really quickly? The only article I remember. From I used to subscribe to all of this Teen Vogue seventeen like all the whatever. <laughs> I think this was Teen Vogue. I remember reading this article. You were a, you were a subscriber. Oh, from a very too young of an age. Like I was young, young. My like interesting. Yeah, okay. I I had tons of magazines growing up. Like I loved. I wonder if that's magazines. why you're so worldly. Oh, me. In a I way. think it I actually mean, made me more liberal, honestly. And then I started like reading. My the mom has said Post that, like, she received National Geographic growing up, and she attributes yeah. that because she wasn't able to travel, you know, abroad as like I would have. But anyways, yeah, yeah. That I think that actually got me into like because then I started like email newsletters in like middle school. I started getting like Washington Posts and stuff. Like when I was in middle school, and read like opinion articles. Washpo, if you're listening to this, please do a profile on your favorite. I actually, cried. the first time I met a Washington Post reporter, I was like, I don't even know, like 20 or something, and I cried because <laughs> I was. I mean, like I'm in this like small city in the south that's like no, that's a big so deal. Segregated. That's a big like, deal. Yeah, I'm like I loved you. Wait, why were they the interviewing email. you? 
No, no, I just met them. I just, well, like, but why? Why were they there? I think, like, a master, uh, they would have these, like, master's teas, like, at, um, in college. It was, like, in college, like, when I... In Connecticut. Yeah, yeah, Not in Louisiana. Oh, okay, no, 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 yeah, it, I didn't meet it, them okay. in my hometown. <laughs> and then he gave them, like, okay, got it, got it, got it. <laughs> um, but there were, like, little talks and stuff that you could go to. They don't call them masters anymore because... Master class. <laughs> but, yeah, they were, like, they were, like, well, we had these figures in our colleges called masters. They changed them to heads of college. But Appropriate. They were called masters of our college. Yeah, I know. But Anyways, okay. okay. Yeah, but, okay, so this article was, like, about this this big blonde football player and he was in high school and he went to this party and he drank three, four locos and he died of alcohol poisoning. And when I tell you how much this article scared me about alcohol poisoning, that you would like could literally just die from drinking too much in a night, like not alcoholism. Yeah. Like not alcoholism. It was like alcohol, like you and your body could consume too much in one night and die right there in front of all your friends asleep on the couch anyway this is all i remember from teen vogue and it's like scared me off of binge drinking like so you know so i'm sorry let me just let me just in essence anna walton has not binge has not participated in binge drinking because of a teen vogue article written in the early 2000s it affected me i mean i'm not saying i've never like drank too much but like i'm a big like I shouldn't say this on a podcast, actually. But, I mean, like, I I know my limits. Like, I'm like, okay, I got to stop. And I felt bad the next day. I'm not, I'm not an angel. But, like, this article literally was like, if this, like, huge football player guy can, like, die from drinking. Anyway, thank you, Team Vogue. You have saved me. Wow. All right. <laughs> saving lives. Saving lives, Team Vogue. We... Justin Bieber and Teen Vogue. We are your stands. This is a throw a throwback. <laughs> We're regressing to yeah, what, we are. what brought us joy. Two <laughs> thousands. Is that the is that the uh, the bottom of of depression? Is like <laughs> regressing back to your. Okay. Anyways, let me put my glasses on. So Teen Vogue, uh, an article written by uh, Kaylin Ralph uh, in Teen Vogue that was posted uh, or published right after the election entitled White Women's Support for Trump Remains High in 2020 Election. So 55% of white women voted for Trump, representing at least a two-point increase for this demographic since 2016. The states that turned blue for Biden in the days following November 3rd were carried out by the work of women of color who turned out voters in urban areas, which there is like definitely, you know, I think the narrative that is circulating and like very hot and heavy right now amongst national Democrats is that, um, you know, Medicare for all lost it for us. And we'll and I'll and I want to end on AOC's interview with The New York Times because I think it's important to to um, in contrast to that. Uh, You can't place a sticker of the harsh truth that this country must once again face up to when given the choice, more than half of the white women in this country apparently opted to decide with the devil they know rather than the women who are unfairly tasked once again with saving democracy. So um, as Anna and I were processing the election results and I was just, you know, if you reached out to me last week, no, I'm not going to. I will respond maybe in a month, but I'm like, I'm, I'm still at a point where I'm, I'm grappling with what happened. Um, so as you know, Biden won, but folks showed out in greater numbers to vote for Trump during a pandemic where however many lives have been lost and, you know, massive, like the worst 
wealth inequality in this country. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, yeah. So Anna sent me this um, Instagram live feed from Sonia Renee Taylor, who is a, a black poet and activist. Um, and I, it, it was, it was like, you sent it to me on Instagram and I sat, I, I, I lay down on the couch and I was captivated for 20 minutes watching it. Like I did not, you know, usually I'm on Twitter scrolling. I just sat there and leaned in because it spoke to what I was feeling. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about the video and, you know, your, your processing of it. Yeah. So I, you know, like, how did you find was, it? Um, I think, and we'll link it in the, in the notes because it was, but so what did, it, so the title is, um, white, whiteness, is, whiteness a is a death cult. cult. White folks need to get out of. Let me, let's repeat that. Whiteness is a death cult. White folks need to get out of. Yeah. Which caught my eye. I <laughs> know. <laughs> um, I think if I'm thinking about it, I think that um, it might be creepy to talk about people that you don't actually know who you follow on Instagram, but I follow someone named Bryn Plummer who works at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, I believe. She's in Nashville. Um, she posts the best content, I feel like, um, and she reshared the video. And so I, I, you know, I was searching for answers and everything was like coming off as like really like just it wasn't it wasn't ringing true for me and it was just like not satisfying right so like, like shallow you're seeing, like, analyses yeah or? like like um this is just showing that uh, particularly what, in the what time were people when, grappling with you felt like after the election that like biden was only coming out what well, was like inking like when trump was doing really well which had been predicted right but i wasn't really that familiar with the idea of the red mirage like i knew biden would have more mail-in votes but i did not realize because i don't listen to trump like I did not realize what it was going to look like in the first, you know, 48 hours. So the first thing I was seeing is that, like, this is messaging problems. This is strategy problems. This is, like, a democratic error of, like, some kind of politics. And I'm like, that's not – that didn't ring true to me because that's not what I've seen. And I also don't think that – I mean – almost 4 million more people, like, (laughs) support – like, so I really don't think, like – I think we need to talk about, like, systemic issues that cause Republicans to keep winning. I don't know. And and people actually are conservative. Like, I think that's one thing that is also, also, you know, kind of glossed over is that, like, no, they actually believe, like, lies about Democrats. And so they are conservative. They are, like, no, I don't want that. Like, and it may, you know, it may be a communication issue, but it also like is a race issue. Right. So Mm. when I saw this video, it really named to me the, which um, no one was talking about race besides maybe the national level, like, and and national Democrats are saying that, you know, the George Floyd protests and this defund police narrative inhibited them or, you know, thwarted their progress in ways that made them lost race, lose races. Right. Yeah, so when I saw this video, um, she was speaking about nihilism, and it, and I mean, it's a little heady, it's like philosophical, there's a lot of terms that may not be... But it's funny used, because you and I, like, in the moment, like, you sent that to me, and I thought, chills. I thought, holy shit, like, this yeah. is exactly... Like this is this this is what I needed to hear, and I think her cadence and the way and the way she that she delivered the message, it was like 
this election is about whiteness. Yeah. And, and, so, it, and it's a white problem, too. And so... So what does she, she say in the she video? She was basically talking about the, the, the foundation, the white supremacy that that powers our actions and and powers the way that we move through the world will lead us to kill ourselves to maintain the fiction of the superiority or of the supremacy. Okay, I need you to, yes, and I need you to take it <laughs> to a level. So, I mean, I, COVID's an example of that. So, like, we will kill our own to maintain our individualism and our and our the way that we function in the world and same with welfare or with Medicaid or we like, we will, we want to preserve our idea of what superiority is, which for a lot of folks is themselves being white and their proximity to whiteness at the detriment of society. Yeah. I'm not just black and brown people, but uh, it actually collectivism. It actually kills us too. That it's, I mean, white babies die of infant mortality, like, you know, and of poor health outcomes, like, and so it, it is a death cult. It's what she's saying. Whiteness is a death cult. It is, we will die on this hill. We will die for the fact that we think we are better <laughs> than other people. But, but here's the thing is that it's not, like, I don't think white women go to the polls knowing like i'm choosing this because of my proximity to whiteness and oh, white no, supremacy no. so like can you unpack that a little bit for folks that may be listening yeah i think it's a lot more every day than that like i think that is obviously a philosophical take on it um like if you're familiar with the concept of nihilism that most Which, of us aren't thinking about. I mean, most of us aren't thinking about that in our in our day to day lives. So. And nihilism is like okay. Now we're now we're okay. I mean, philosophy one hundred and one on grits. No, please. I think it's important for people to know. Can I look up a? It's I it's be precise. It, is it is it not the idea that you just you think everything would be better, gone like and dead, like you're just like there's no existence because. Uh, yeah, and it may it may be too. It's like anything that threatens, uh, like how how is that in practice? I want I want to like talk about like in real terms, like how is it in practice that whiteness will lead to the inevitable outcome is that it will lead to death for all things because it doesn't allow right. thriving. It's not allowing. It's limiting for everyone, but but at because you are choosing like as in a society where like for example healthcare, which we have talked a lot about extensively on this pod, you are choosing to preserve like whatever whatever health insurance you have, right? At at the detriment of other folks of of, of a societal push for for example Medicare for all which is our policy mm -hmm. like our progressive policy position in the U S which is like everyone deserves health care when everyone has has health care we all benefit from it but instead yeah. you are going to choose what you have and destroy any ability for there to be a policy. Because that's where we are with electoralism, right? Yeah. That you that there will be health care, health insurance for all. Yeah. And I mean, you can bring this to education and the invention of white Christian private schools and suburbs 
And I mean, there's, there's a lot of areas where you can apply it to of like, I want what I want. And, and this myth around, um, I mean, one of the biggest narratives I was seeing, which doesn't seem to be about race is about taxes, right? So like the amount of people talking about like Biden's going to raise your taxes and it's like, no one you know makes over four hundred thousand dollars a right, year. Right, right, literally no one you know. And I mean, I come from a particularly low income. As as much as they don't want to admit it, like it is a low income, <laughs> it is a low income community. It's oil money, but that's fickle. So like, it's up and down, and like it is a low income community. Like it's not a booming economy, and just this scare this scaredness and the fear around like your taxes being raised has to do with what's behind that where do you think your taxes are going why do you not want your money to go towards things that will help other people when you are benefiting and without the knowledge of that you're benefiting from those taxes too because you drive on roads you went to public school right. like we right. basically all went to public school and so I don't know. For me, it's the same argument. But, but, but for me, it was like, <laughs> I mean, it, it was just, it was this like really honest, raw and naked criticism of white folks in a way that I needed post the election. Because I literally like Biden won, but racism won. And maybe that's the yeah, title of the pod. It's like, true. it's like. We more people decided that this racist white supremacist bigot deserved your vote at at the ballot box than any other person. And right. Like, I mean, it's just and I was I'm totally destroyed. And as someone who and and you're the same, it's like we actively try to implement, you know, you know, anti-racism work within our professional and personal like portfolios right and I think that I mean it just it just it like broke me that like wow there's so much work to be done and people would literally choose this individualism this individualist white supremacy culture over this collectivist like I don't want to say socialism but like a, 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 like social a, democracy yeah exactly a society where we all do better because we're all getting the same thing like, you want to preserve your whatever you have, your health insurance, your wealth over the benefit of society. And I see that in a lot of white women that are in my, you know, circles, right? And I'm just like... And it's all... It is a white problem, right? So I think a lot of the articles you're mentioning in, like... And why is why, why is that? Because it's not the responsibility of the people that vote in vast majorities for the the candidates who are looking out for all of us, it's not their responsibility to address or, or make people understand and respect their humanity and their val you know, and their value to our society. It is our problem with each other to deal with like the people, the, I can't do math, 45%, the 45% of white people are white women who voted for Biden in our sphere. We have a lot of people who, who lean that way or sympathize with certain messages. And I think also the whiteness is a death cult. Like that is a new message for me. Like I've, I, mm. you know, I've obviously heard of dying. Which is of also, whiteness. yeah. So sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I've heard of like dying of whiteness of like, you know, Jonathan why, Metzl, Vanderbilt professor. will have you on the pod. Thank you. 
<laughs> like, why do some people vote against their interests? Or why will some people, why are some people willing to die over a belief in their own supremacy? I had never heard it put that way. Like, mm. I had never, like, because that just like, doesn't even make any logical sense to me. But it's like, oh my gosh, that is what is happening. Like, so what, so what did you, I mean, and we can move on from the video, but I just, I think for me, it was, it was, it's our responsibility. An encapsulation, yeah, of, of how I was feeling in that moment that Biden won, but we lost, like, racism won. Like, we, we've, mm-hmm. we've lost all of these people who decided in the moment that voting for Trump was more important than this collectivist, like, everyone deserves healthcare. Everyone deserves to have a healthy baby. I mean, it, and it, that's what shook me, like, to my core. I'm like, oh, I'm like, I'm tearing up thinking about him now, but it's just like, God, what fucking country do we live in, you know? Oh, God. But it's the, narr- it's the false narratives. I think that would, that's what it all comes back to, like, what I was saying about taxes, what I was saying about whiteness, what I was saying, you know, about healthcare. It, it, there are false narratives that are are built on a foundation of racism that we're not we're not ever digging down we're not not ever excavating right right the basis of when when you go if only they acted this way if only that person did this thing to pull themselves up by the bootstraps like if only you know we could all have nice things if only and i think that it, it, but we need to dig down deeper than that. And we need to figure out that all of these narratives that drove people, that drove white women to the polls to vote for Trump. I've heard many of them. I've seen them on my Facebook. I've seen, I've heard them from family members. Like if only we could drill down on each of those and get to the core of it, it, it is rotten. It is, it is what she was saying and what she was putting words to. And so like, Please watch the video. That's all. <laughs> yeah, we'll post it. Yeah. I mean, it, it like it really spoke to the moment. Yeah, white women voted for Trump, two percentage points more than they did in 2016. But and then I also want to bring in this this article in the Undefeated. Um, black women say white feminists also have a Trump problem. So there's you know white liberals. Um, this is from L- Lene O'Neill. A vocal segment of women of color, especially black feminists, are saying, hold up, pump the brakes. While white feminists are issuing all hands on deck calls to stand against the Trump presidency, these women say they haven't worked hard enough to even win a majority of their own ranks. Polls show 94% of black women, the highest percentage in the nation, voted for Hillary Clinton, as did 69% of Latinas. So, like, even though, like, organize your own, like, get involved in your own community and organize your own, they're still saying, like, white women, especially white liberal, you know, white progressives like yourself and I are failing at that. White feminism focuses on mommy wars more than affordable and accessible childcare. It gives scant attention to violence faced by women of color and trans women. It is centered on the urban coastal experience to the exclusion of suburban and rural women of all races. Harris wrote, self-referential, non-intersectional feminism doesn't speak to most women of color, but here's the real rub. At least when it comes to progressive politics, it doesn't speak to most white women either. And so, like, you know, you and I had talked, I think, two weeks ago before the election 
about the New York Times, the the field episode where they went into rural Ohio and they interviewed three of these white white female mothers. One did not vote in 2016. One voted for Gary Johnson, the libertarian candidate, and one voted for Trump. And I did listen to it, and I was I was I was tearing up by the end of it. I thought, wow, like these these women have really embraced. I mean, they were talking about Black Lives Matter and like and really, you know, this intersectional thinking of their lives and everyone else's. Um, and I think this is I mean, this is accurate, though. It's like I think like there's only so far that white feminism can go, especially when it comes to the the, the epoch of Trump. What would you say to that? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's a new quote to me. And I really like the idea of, like, the urban coastal elite versus the suburban and rural really rings true to me because I can see, I can see that difference. Like, I, you know, I have firsthand experience of that difference of how feminism manifests itself and what problems are relevant to people's lives. I definitely think we could, we have and will continue to unpack gender norms and, um, how people are in relationship to each other. But I think a big part of, um, sadly to say, like in more rural and suburban areas where gender roles are more traditional, mm. that has a big effect on it. It really yeah. does. And I mean, I think mean, about, think about like, and I'll never, I mean, and I will never say a disparaging, yes, like coastal elites, but after seeing the, the capacity to which these, for example, these like grassroots progressive groups in California were phone banking into Kentucky and these Southern States. Like they, when I could barely even get Tennesseans to make phone calls to other Tennesseans, like Californians were like, yeah, I'll step in and I'll do this. Right. Um, but I think they're like, their material experience is very different than women in the South. And I think back to David Bird's race and like going door to door and knocking on the door and saying, Hey, can I speak to your wife? Who's the actual voter that I need to talk to in order to make a point. And the husband would say, no, sorry, you can speak to me if it's about politics. I mean, it's like, and that's a barrier that, you know, these women in California don't face on a daily basis. And like, that's, I mean, that's our, that's our political reality. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm not saying like husbands necessarily control how someone votes, but like it, I maybe it's just more of a community driven thing. Like when when you're in these deep red districts, like you just don't vote differently. And I think, and I mean, we're self selecting. We're just like sorting into these areas. And so I'm not saying like, I, and because like also like most people I know in coastal elite couples, like they're both progressive. So like I'm not saying that those same dynamics don't happen and like a lot of people are like I wouldn't date someone of a different political party so it's definitely a sorting aspect of our relationships but I it is a barrier to movement or to conversation or to opening up to someone like hey as a woman like you should worry about affordable child care like you should worry about like right and I and I've really tried I mean and I think of my friends who aren't as I mean they would they would self-describe as apolitical and I think, like, if I can't win you on universal child care, like, if I can't win the argument or, like, not that there is an argument, but, like, if I can't, if I can't move you to my further left based on these policy positions of universal child care, what the hell am I doing? And I think, like, that's the criticism in this article, which is, like, white feminists, like, okay, yeah, you've, you know, you've moved further left, but who have you brought with you? Who in your community have you done the hard work? And I, and I talked to, with Chris about this last weekend when I was deep in the deep bells of pr- depression, 
post-election depression, which I, I, you know, is an ongoing thing. (laughs) But I thought, like, here I am engaged, and I think, especially in a state like Tennessee, you know, a lot of my professional work is moving white women further left, but moving women who may agree with me on some things and moving them further left. Mm -hmm. But if I even take, like, a few steps further back, right? And my friends that maybe don't believe in, you know, universal health care. It's like, are those the people that I should be spending my time convincing and moving with me? And am I the am I the problem? I mean, I wouldn't say <laughs> I wouldn't say you're the problem, well, especially like on that. Yeah, I I think I even have. I mean, I have way more work to do than than you've done as far as like having. You also have a more conservative circle. Oh, yeah, yeah. Familial and, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I personally, like, I'm such a people pleaser. I'm a middle child. Like, there's so many things about my personality that mm. the deep canvassing work is, like, not my <laughs> not my bag, for sure. I understand the importance of it and, like, really love it. And I really, like, I believe in, like, I mean, it may be, and I'm now I'm seeing, like, it doesn't really make a difference of, like, leading by example right so like my values are I hope hopefully I'm living out my values and I'm living out living them out in a way you and don't I don't feel think you're my, bringing anyone with you I don't think my identity is a it I I have seen people move on that spectrum and I don't necessarily think I'm the cause of it but I think that I help give people cover I hope like I'm probably thinking too much into it, but it's really, really, really hard to be liberal in Shreveport, Louisiana. Yeah. It really, really is. And I was so combative for so many years mm. and so deep in it. And I left and I said, see ya. And I, I kind of like felt convicted when Chris was talking about how some people will come down and organize in Tennessee and then leave. And then they can tell these war stories for years of like, mm. oh my gosh, you would mm. never believe what this person said in this place. That's my family. That is my that is my life. That is who I grew up with. That is my family. And I have 100% respect. And that's why I sometimes have these, like, vulnerability hangovers from these podcasts because, like, I truly do feel like I see the humanity in every person that believes some of these really crazy things that we talk about. Like, and I – and it's, like, an internal – eternal and internal battle for me, like – that I feel like I have a responsibility to move people at the same time that I have, like, extreme, like, fear of those confrontations or, like, those debates because I have had, you know, there's these narratives. There's the elite narrative, even though I wouldn't even say, like, trust me, I do not fit in an elite circle. So I <laughs> Like, I've eaten way too many Sloppy Joes in my day to fit in. <laughs> I've had squirrel. I've had, like, every animal that you can think of, like, roadkill. Like, I am from literally deep country. Like, I mean, it's so funny to me, like, how much I do not fit into, like, elite circles. But then at the same time, it's like, why do you talk different now? Why do you, like, like, I'm literally from the country, like, I'm from, yeah, but also, <laughs> from the I mean, deep south. Would you like, not say that you're experiences of attending college out of state at an elite institution informed how you perceive the world now oh 100% but like I identified very strongly as liberal before I even went to college yeah so I had that like I had that I'm smarter than you high school girl energy which is interesting because Chris says the same thing yeah and both of you you know both of you went to like 
very deep southern high schools and felt you were better than everyone else because maybe your intellect or like knowing more than folks but like look both of you turned out i mean chris is much further left than you are but (laughs) but but you see what i'm saying it's like yeah yeah and i even like evolved more in college particularly around like cultural issues like Mm. i didn't have that that introduction to culture i believe policy wise like i had very liberal meanings but anyway i evolved a lot but like i can understand like I saw it firsthand and I just have no desire to be involved in those conflicts anymore. And so this election is so tough for me because Mm. I was starting to get more antagonism. It probably was on the receivers end. Yeah. On the receivers in pre-election, like I was starting to get a lot more like, well, don't you think regulation is bad because X, Y, Z, like, don't you think, we should be allowed to evict people. Like, don't you think, you know, just like, you know, these, these types of things. And I don't necessarily feel like I am the, per- but, but this may be, I'm, the, I may be the problem. Like I'm starting to grapple with this of like, when do I push back? Mm-hmm. What do I say? What What's the tone? When do you build the relationship over the political stances? When do you, like, how do you be values-based in those situations to where you find, like, a common ground and not react? And I just freeze. Well, and, like, I mean, there's one example that I have in my head where my friend had a baby who was in the NICU unit for a very long time. And I remember she had a post on Instagram that said, like, had a post. It was, like, a million-dollar bill from the NICU unit. And her post was like, get better health insurance. And I was like, and I didn't, and I, and I should have in that moment engaged with like, (laughs) this is a really bad take. And I need you to understand why, because like the system is inherently corrupt and terrible. And like, none of our NICU babies should ever, like our family should ever have to pay this. And like, imagine if you were destitute and like what that would be like. And, and instead, I, I, I just didn't because I'm like, I'm so busy caught up in this electoral world and my professional career that, like, I didn't do that. And I didn't take the moment to do that. And I really think of, like, these micro moments with my white friends that, like, I, I, I you know, hopefully none of them voted for Trump, but some of them didn't vote. Mm-hmm. I'm sure some of them didn't vote. And they're just not telling me because they're really embarrassed. And it's mm-hmm. like, <sighs> yeah. But it's a larger, it's not even about, like, our personal relationships even. But it's, like, other, I mean, it's all of our personal relationships, right? Like, you can always think of an example. Our social networks have grown, right? So you can always think of an example of, like, I should have said something. Like, I should have done something. But I'm, but I'm like, I'm really grappling with, especially in these numbers, because I think, for me, like, the barometer of success, you know, unfortunately rests within this electoral world, and the fact that more white women voted for Trump is just like, I mean, I'm 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 totally beside myself. Like more, and, and that was so against the narrative of what we were hearing. It was like that people were, but changing we're also in our bubbles and like our echo yeah, chambers, right? But I knew, I mean, I knew it was going to be close. Like, and I, I mean, even in our pod, like obviously Texas, there was a few, you know, million votes off, but. And I think the Senate map, we don't need to get into the electoral, you know, world, but, like, the Senate map just, I think it totally broke me in a way that, like, we have really lost, we have lost uh, these people, right? And they they continue to show up and vote for Republicans in ways, and, like, in, in, in massive waves. 
And I just, I just find it totally disparaging and, and upsetting. And so I think as we, yeah, now we're heading into the hour, but um, I wanted to highlight Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's interview in the New York Times about Biden um, because I think, you know, on the heels of more white women voting for Trump and both Democratic, like, no, well, the Republicans aren't even, you know, obviously debating this or like race. But, you know, you should know that Republicans are always talking about race. They're always everything. Everything is either a dog whistle or they're continuously like in any social. They're always talking about race. And the Democrats at a national level don't want to engage in that conversation, and they're missing the beat. While you are while you are contemplating not talking about race because maybe you feel, and I think, like, what am I trying to say? You're you're missing the mark in thinking that by not talking about race, you were doing a, a service to your constituents. Well, they're they're privileging white women, basically. I would say, like, who do they think is movable? White women who are independent. Suburban women, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And they're trying not to scare them off. And they're privileging that in the communications. I mean, but you look at suburban women this cycle, and they showed up in, in greater numbers to vote for Biden, right? right? And I think, but, like, overall, as an, at, at, like, within the national numbers, like, white women, you know, voted for Trump. So all that to say is that I think the Democratic Party nationally has a race narrative problem, Right. And on the left, we have tried to remedy this by putting forth uh, messaging guidelines around race class narrative. That, like, if the right is talking about race, we've got to be talking about it too, because otherwise, it fills this messaging vacuum, right? Um, and so, this this interview with AOC in the New York Times, I just I want to highlight a few things. Um, so once, so she said, but also we have learned that progressive policies do not hurt candidates, and every single candidate, every single candidate that co-sponsored Medicare for all in a swing district kept their seat. We also know that co-sponsoring the Green New Deal was not a sinker. So, and the national narratives are like, oh, these progressive policies are just like, you know, they're they're a death sentence. It's it's absolutely not true. And I think when you offer universal programs, and I think the Democrats, especially nationally and statewide, are very scared to talk about that. I mean, we still have state Democrats that are talking about Medicaid expansion. No one knows what the hell that is. And like, we've got to be talking about health justice and universal health care and, 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 you know, making sure the maternal mortality rate is one of, is not one of the worst in the developed countries of the world. She also says, AOC, we need to do a lot of anti-racist deep canvassing snap, snap, snaps in this country, because if we keep losing white shares and just allowing Facebook to radicalize more and more elements of white voters in the white electorate, there's no amount of people of color and young people that can turn out to offset that. Right. Mm -hmm. And the also like the, the narrative coming from, I don't know if you've seen all the, the, um, internal arguments from the house caucus but they the house of representatives at the national level lost a lot of seats that unsurprisingly like they didn't even have their polls on and moderates lost their seats right and they immediately attacked the left and it's like yeah. i'm sorry i'm sorry rashida tlaib who is the representative of detroit guess who flipped detroit in Michigan for Biden, right? It's these women of color, like on the backs of progressive women of color. We we were able to flip the presidential map in a way that gave Biden what? How many more? How many more? Seven million upwards of seven million pop in pop 
Oh, I don't know. Okay. What well, it, whatever. What, Arizona's on the fence right now. So this we is don't what, know yet. <laughs> so this is what AOC ends with. So I need my colleagues to understand that the left is not the enemy and that their base is not the enemy. That the movement for black lives is not the enemy and that Medicare for all is not the enemy. This isn't even about winning an argument. It's just that they keep going after the wrong thing. I mean, they're just setting up their own obsolescence. So all, all that to say is that I think... You know, we, Anna and I, make sure that we talk about race in every podcast because I think, especially as white women in the South, like, race permeates every single conversation. It It is, like, and, you know, I think Chris would argue, you know, from a, from a very, like, socialist standpoint that, like, the material concerns versus race. But, like, honestly, I just, I, I don't feel like we can walk away from this election feeling good about it when you look at how many white people turned out to vote for Trump. Yeah. I agree with that. <laughs> I think getting to the core of what parts of systemic racism connect to what narratives are like coming out of people's mouths though are like is really important to me. Like that uh, connecting those dots for people. Like I feel like when you say this that makes me think this and like kind of explaining like the basis kind of what I was saying earlier, like drilling down into like, how does that connect back to a biased or racist belief? And I don't know how to do that work. But I think it involves people's personal realities. I mean, you, you think about, I, I know you listened to the podcast uh, in the field of the suburban women, but the woman was a school teacher at a charter school. And she talked about how, you know, the majority of her students were black and like, she couldn't imagine you know, whatever the Black Lives Matter, you know, paradigm and how she applied it to her own lived reality as a teacher at the school. And I think, like, (laughs) you know, obviously this is another episode for another day, but, like, you know, people move out to the suburbs and, like, they have these manicured lawns and they don't deal. And I think, like, AOC was asked, what does, oh, what does defunding the police look like? And she said, a suburb. Think about that. there's no police. They literally don't get in trouble for anything. (laughs) Anyways, I just, you know, I, I, I think for me, I agree, I, I agree with Charles Blow, the New York Times columnist, that this, ra- this, this election was a referendum on race, and I think we have failed terribly as an American populace, and I, um, and I'm, you know, I'm depressed, and I think that, like, you know, as white liberals are celebrating Biden's win, like, we have so much work to do, and I really challenge all of you that are listening that, you know, I... Like, I can't, I can't do this forever, and I can't, like, I can't do this organizing and these deep canvassing conversations for the rest of my life on a daily basis. Like, yes, I get paid to do that, and I'm very lucky that I do, but you have got to start doing this in your own lives and really reckoning with white supremacy and whiteness and your affiliation with whiteness in ways that I think make you uncomfortable and that's if that if this pod doesn't do anything if this if this episode and this podcast doesn't do anything else I hope that this does that it does this I agree (laughs) good I second that I can care Uh, all right lots more conversations to come and I I do think this is like this is just like the start of a new inning it's not even like we're still playing the same game. Like, it's not yeah. a game changer. Like, <laughs> Biden is not a game changer by any stretch. And it's still, you know, 
there's still a lot of people that, including the president himself, who uh, won't accept the fact that that there has been a change and what? There's some weird noise outside your oh the air, is air conditioning. The, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there's a ghost. There's a ghost. Anna and I were talking about. Oh we God. need a little like okay. Friday the thirteenth is coming up this Friday. And we need a little spookiness. Just get a Ouija board. Our game. Oh, yes. Do wah, a seance. Wah, 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 wah. I've never actually done any of that because I'm too scared. But That's a, yeah, Well, maybe Chris and I will come over. All right, Diana, what are you grateful for? I am grateful for good food. <laughs> I don't know. I will second that. Yeah. I'll second it's that. It's so, like... I, it has been, like, my only pleasure, really, like, consistent pleasure. You know, of course, we have our, we have our good times together. Do you think that's and we do something because we're not on, like, stim- simulation override because of trips or? Yeah, and it's more so, like, I've been able to cook stuff that I typically wouldn't be able to cook. And, like, I mean, we're eating out a little bit, like, mostly outside and stuff, obviously. But, and especially now that everything's getting worse, we'll be eating out a lot less. But, like. I'm thinking about this role at Oku. I don't know if anyone has been in Germantown. Oh, my gosh. I think it's called... Um, Is it a new restaurant? It's new-ish, oh yeah. Oh, my God. They have half-price rolls on Mondays, half-price drinks on Wednesdays. But they have a... Um, they used to have this special on Sundays that was a Wagyu Philly cheesesteak. <laughs> and it was... And for, a sushi roll? No, 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 just, like, a sandwich. Oh, but they have sushi. They have sushi, too. But they have, like, a goat cheese and truffle Wagyu Oh, my God. It's, like, the most... It's, like, an umami bomb. Like, oh, my God, it's so good. Anyway, that's, like, my new favorite. And I love all my people, but food really gives me life. I will say that, too. I went to Trader Joe's today, and... I like I, I really I would love to have someone from the food justice movement come on our pod to talk about, you know, what what that means to them and just like where the food comes from and how like and there's a whole agricultural oh. side to it. Yeah, but all that to say is that like I appreciate good food. I never had any understanding of um gastronomy or the culinary arts until my friend's ex boyfriend was the head chef at um Husk, Sean oh, Brock's yeah. restaurant. And we were able to take a tour of, like, the underground basement. And he was like, this is the caramel that's been fomented from the kombucha for five months. And we are. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a science. Like, I I could not even handle it. So, yeah, lots of appreciation for that. Um, I'm grateful for... Oh, I'm so depressed this week. <laughs> Just people checking on me. I yeah. mean, I'm I'm really grateful for my friend Elena, you know, has been checking on me like how you feeling and I just feel like I have not been a good friend to other people and I hope like as I picked myself up from my bootstraps, mm-hmm. picked myself up from my emotional bootstraps, um that I can check in with more people. I have 10 million thank you notes to write this weekend. So uh, I'm going to a lesbian donkey farm in Franklin, and I will be writing thank you notes. <laughs> you say are you the donkeys eat? lesbians? No, they are not. It's owned by a lesbian couple. So I will be. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard that one before. Um, well, you you say you haven't been a good friend, but. Afton brought me flowers. Well, I'm turning a new leaf. I oh, told you. Think? I'm like, I'm out of the bout of depression. Comes, rises the Afton Phoenix of. <laughs> and she hosted on um, 
she hosted on election night and we had just texted a little bit, but I hadn't even like, I mean, I checked on you a little bit, but like. Oh, I was in full rage mode. Yeah. 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 It's not fun to be around me on election night. <laughs> Anyways. Okay. Well, you know, once again, this, this, this pod as well as this episode is not like, it's, it's just asking y'all to really dig in because I think like as Anna and I struggle with these issues that we are hoping that, you know, whoever listens to this pod, like you take a nugget of truth away and maybe you go into a conversation feeling a little better about life um, and, and your, your place in it. So uh, with that, we will see you in two weeks. Um, maybe we'll take a holiday break. Hopefully. Fingers okay. crossed. All right. Sounds good. Um, and okay, he just... Gritty. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you to our griddles and our family at the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network. Be sure to check out the other podcasters in the network who are doing the Lord's work in the state of Tennessee. Find the good stuff at www.tmholler.com and be sure to subscribe and support the holler while you're there. Follow The Holler to keep up with what's going on here in the state at The TN Holler on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And follow Grits at Grits Podcast. Keep it gritty! Bye!